Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Scott Latterman, a professor of history at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. He is the author of several books, including Tours of Vietnam, War, Travel Guides, and Memory with Duke in 2009, Four Decades On, the Vietnam, the United States, and the Legacies of the Second Indochina War, also with Duke 2013, which he co-edited with Edwin A. Martini, Empire and Waves, A Political History of Surfing with the University of California Press 2014. And I had the honor of previously interviewing Scott on this podcast uh, about Empire and Waves. So if you want to get into the backlog there, we had a really great conversation about using uh, surfing as a prism to explore uh, global politics. And I love that book. Um, And then Imperial Benevolence, U.S. Foreign Policy in American Popular Culture Since 9-11, out with the University of California Press 2018, and he co-edited that with Tim Grunewald. But today we'll be talking about his newest book, The Silent Majority Speech, Richard Nixon, The Vietnam War, and the Origins of the New Right, out with Rutledge in 2019. In this short book, part of the Critical Moments in American History series, Dr. Latterman shows how Nixon's November 3rd, 1969 speech can work as a prism to understand the later years of the American war in Vietnam, aka the Second Indochina War. He highlights Nixon's hypocritical blending of an alleged moral high ground with divisive rhetoric. Indeed, the term silent majority stands in sharp contrast to Nixon calling anti-war activists on campus, quote, bums, and the range of racist terms he used for African-Americans, Jews, and the Latinx community. Letterman argues that the speech was a historical turning point in American political history, opening the way for the Lee Atwaters and the Donald Trumps to come. Scott Letterman, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here with you. Um, so I've had you on the podcast before, uh, so I know your history. But uh, would you please tell the listeners a little bit about how you came to be a historian of American foreign policy and particularly its intersections with various forms of popular culture, such as surfing and tourism and so forth. Sure. Well, I, um, I became interested in, certainly in the, the larger world when I was an undergraduate in, in college, um, I became active in a number of different human rights issues. And the more active I became on human rights issues, the more it occurred to me that the United States had some role to play, um, sometimes positively, often negatively, in many of the issues that I was looking at. I also, as an undergraduate, was very interested in history um, and exploring in particular the historical relationship between the United States empire and the subjugation of peoples around the world. Um, And so those were issues that, you know, that fascinated me greatly. Um, And most of my my efforts uh, were focused at that point on, in particular, the cultures of empire. I was interested in popular culture. I was interested in imperial discourses. I was interested in American exceptionalism and how it was that so many Americans didn't recognize the United States as an imperial power. Uh, And so as I finished as an undergraduate and thought about moving on to graduate school, um, you know, like many people, I had to make a decision about what sorts of programs I wanted to apply to. And I ended up actually not going into a history program, but into an American studies program. And uh, to me, American studies uh, offered sort of the best of all worlds. You know, was this, was this in Minnesota? It was in Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. yeah. this was the, uh, this was at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, mm-hmm. um, which had a, a distinguished American studies program. Still a distinguished American studies program. Um, I worked mostly with historians in that program, um, but uh, but nevertheless, an interdisciplinary program. Before I started at Minnesota, and I had never visited Minnesota before uh, starting graduate school there. I grew up in 
California. Yes, yeah, surfer, um, surfer boy from Southern California. Yep, yep. Grew up surfing. Um, that's my interest in in surfing, and my decision later on to to write a book um, that looked at you know, the international politics of, of surfing, the way it intersected with history of American foreign relations, among other things. But, you know, that is very much at the, the heart of the book. Um, before I started at Minnesota, though, um, I sent off my application to there in a number of different places. You know, you don't usually just do a, apply to one program. And then my girlfriend and I, now my wife, but then my girlfriend and I decided we'd just pack up all of our stuff, throw it in storage and just go travel for the year until I started my graduate program. And we went mostly to Southeast Asia. Um, we spent about 10 months abroad, mostly in Southeast Asia. We ended up in Mexico at the end. Um, we happened to be in Indonesia when Suharto was in the process of, of being overthrown. Um, and oh, so this was in 98. It was in 98. Yeah. yeah. And oh, we, yeah. we had to, uh, to leave the country, not because we felt endangered, but apparently if, if you're in the country and your embassy advises you to get out and you stay, your travel insurance becomes null and void. And so, um, but so everything, just, everything got so cheap in Indonesia for tourists in those months. <laughs> I, I felt I had friends who were there and said, like, <laughs> incredibly guilty. I have to tell you, I mean, staying at, you know, in little bungalows on the beach yeah. for, you know, what amounted to 50 cents a night or something. Yeah. It was just, oh, the, it was, the economic chaos with the fall of Suharto was just mind boggling. It was, it was terrible. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but during those, those travels before we came back to the United States and I started as a graduate student, um, one of the things that really struck me, and this was true traveling in Vietnam, which is one of the places that we went, but elsewhere too, was the way that, uh, tourists, either came to learn or mislearn uh, about the history of the places that they were visiting. This struck me, especially in Vietnam, because I had been interested in the history of the Vietnam War. You know, I had read some books about it before, uh, uh, you know, as an undergraduate and before heading off to, to Southeast Asia. And I, I just, you know, in particular was struck by the way that travel guidebooks seem to drive not just what people saw, when they were traveling in Southeast Asia, but how it was that they came to see these places. And it was a, a phenomenon that might not seem obvious us to, to us now because, you know, given technological advancements, people aren't using travel guidebooks in the way that they might have 20, 30 years ago. Now they pull out their phones and they bring up stuff on their, their phones. But at the time, I mean, you know, it was almost impossible to see somebody traveling in, in Vietnam or other countries in Southeast Asia without a Lonely Planet guidebook in there. I mean, I, I am guilty of that in the 90s and the early 2000s, those big old bricks of books. And it was, it was a borderline monopoly too, because there was, oh, it was Lonely Planet. And then I think Moon Publications, maybe earlier on, had some rival books that were also brick size. But every backpacker, every mid-range traveler had that book and that, that structured, yeah, how, how we saw the country and our reality and things that Absolutely. the book simply didn't exist. But I'm, I'm sorry, go on. I, anyway, that, that ended up, you know, through, um, it was during those travels beforehand that I ended up finding the kernel of what would become my dissertation project as a graduate student. It's not something I thought about pursuing in graduate school until a couple of years into graduate school, but ultimately became fascinated by that question enough so that I thought I'd explore it formally as a PhD dissertation and looked at then that relationship between tourism and memory in post-colonial Vietnam, particularly through the, the lens of how travel literature, guidebooks, um, you know, tourism pamphlets and so on, uh, conveyed certain realities to people who found themselves on the ground in, in these countries. And then that dissertation became that, that first book that you mentioned earlier, Tours of Vietnam, War Travel Guides and Memory. Right. And then, then you did the fun stuff with surfing. I did. Um, and then you did maybe less fun stuff looking at Richard Milhouse Nixon. So how did you, how'd you come around to this project? Well, it was, a, it was in some ways a tough book to write. I mean, you know, Nixon is a a very unsavory character on a number of levels and is someone who is responsible for um, a great deal of tragedy, both in the United States and around the world. And so, you know, it can be tough working through the archi archives, um, you know, examining the details of, of the way that the Nixon administration, the United States more broadly, 
fundamentally changed the lives of millions of people in Southeast Asia and around the world um, in often, you know, horrific sorts of ways. Um, this particular Nixon book came about um, because part of uh, what I looked at in the first book that I did, Tours of Vietnam, was something called the Hue Massacre, which was this um, atrocity in, in central Vietnam in the city of Hue in, in 1968. And it tapped into uh, in kind of a an ideological debate of sorts in the United States at the time um, that was often been referred to as the bloodbath theory. And Richard Nixon was very much at the heart of this. And this is something we can talk about later in, in this podcast. Um, but, you know, I, I was intrigued by the way that rhetoric discourse was being employed by the Nixon administration in ways that, you know, when what I was looking at in tours of Vietnam filtered down into the, the tourism literature, um, but it, not in ways that I went too deeply in tours of Vietnam and that I decided to want to explore a bit more. And so the bloodbath theory ended up being sort of the origins of, of this book on the silent majority speech. I felt that it was something that hadn't received the sort of attention that it deserved in the past. And because Nixon probably most famously articulated that bloodbath theory in what became known as the silent majority speech, this nationwide address that he delivered in November of 1969, um, that ended up serving as, in this case, the kernel of, of this book, um, you know, where I expanded that initial interest in the bloodbath theory into a larger book on the significance of that speech, uh, the way it helped to shape how we understand the Vietnam War from 1969 through the end of the war. Uh, and then, of course, what I identify is, in some ways, the origins of the new right. Nixon alone was not responsible for that, but helped to, you know, certainly to, to push along some ideas that had begun to emerge earlier in the 1960s um, that, you know, we sometimes refer to today as the, the Southern strategy of the Republican Party, um, how race in particular could be mobilized to effectively capture white votes in the United States for the Republicans as opposed to the Democrats. Right, right. So I'm going to get back into each of those points in a, in a few minutes, but um, um, could you briefly tell us what was the silent majority speech? Um, it's, it's November uh, 3rd, 1969. Um, uh, when, you know, at what point in the war is this? Um, and um, what, did, what did he hope to accomplish with it? Um, who was he speaking to? And also, I think very importantly, who was he speaking against? Because you highlight this divisive rhetoric. So just what's the sort of elevator pitch for explaining the silent majority speech before we get into the heart of the book? Well, the silent majority speech was a speech, like you said, that Richard Nixon delivered November 3rd, 1969. And we remember it today as the silent majority speech because of a I don't want to say a throwaway line near the end of the speech, but but it certainly wasn't the heart of, of what Nixon was trying to do in this speech. But, you know, it was about 30 minutes into a 32-minute speech um, in which he implored at the end what he called the great silent majority of my fellow Americans uh, to provide support for him and his policies to help the United States overcome the growing hostility to the war in the country and ultimately achieve what Nixon referred to as an honorable peace. Now, this is a speech that came uh, near the end of the first year of the Nixon administration. So if Nixon came into the White House in January of 1969, this was, you know, 10, 11 months later, November of 1969. Um, but this, uh, of course, came fairly late in the Vietnam War. Um, now, when to date the beginning of the war? I mean, that's a, a question that historians can't agree on, right? Um, but this is a war that certainly, you know, goes back to, in one forum or another, uh, the end of the Second World War, even during the Second World War, when you had Vietnamese revolutionary nationalists fighting against, you know, the Japanese during World War II, France, when the war came to an end, and ultimately the United States. Certainly by the early 1960s, U.S. involvement in the war is escalating. Um, this begins particularly under the John F. Kennedy administration, through the Lyndon Johnson administration, so that by the time of the presidential election in the United States in 1968, Richard Nixon is running as, believe it or not, an anti-war candidate in many ways, right? I mean, this is one of these strange things about the Vietnam War, is that um, perhaps not so strange, understandable, given the, the mood in the country, 
but strange in the way that it bridged political divides in other ways that, you know, with one exception, and that exception being Barry Goldwater, every major, major party presidential candidate from 1960 up through the mid-1970s ran effectively on an anti-war platform. Now, what anti-war meant differed, but, you know, this was an unpopular war on the idea of bringing the United States somehow out of it. And that was true of Richard Nixon, um, who did that. And so the silent majority speech um, came fairly late in US involvement in the war. I mean, nearly a decade in to that um, significant escalation that began under the Kennedy administration. Um, however, there still would remain, you know, at least three years of US involvement in the war, plus an additional two years of, of ongoing war without direct U.S. involvement, but certainly indirect influence by the United States in that, so that the war would not end until 1975. And the silent majority speech, what Nixon was proposing in that war, was his plan for bringing about uh, what he called an honorable peace. Um, it was a, a speech that was directed at those that he termed in the end of the speech, the great silent majority of his fellow Americans, polls at this point revealed, of course, that most Americans did not support ongoing U.S. involvement in the war. Um, but Nixon, I think, wanted to fantasize that, in fact, most Americans did. Um, and, of course, the idea of the silent majority also suggests something significant that I think Nixon was able to powerfully exploit, which is that these Americans were silent because they had been silenced. And who silenced them? You know, these, uh, these you know, radical leftists, uh, liberals, the mainstream media who decided to side with the Vietnamese revolutionaries. I mean, all of these are myths and fabrications of the, the Nixon administration, but they resonated with a large number of Americans. Who was the speech not directed at, or who was he at least not speaking to as sort of his fellow Americans in this? Um, those that opposed U.S. policy, which tended at that point to be most Americans. And Americans didn't all oppose U.S. involvement in the war for the same reason. I mean, some people thought the war was immoral. Some people thought all wars were immoral. Some thought the U.S. was engaged in imperialism in Vietnam. Others thought the United States simply couldn't win this war, and why bother fighting a war that you can't win? So Americans came to oppose this war for a variety of different reasons. But what Nixon was trying to do in this speech was to lay out a program for how he saw the United States bringing it about to an honorable end and to call for those who were not supporting U.S. efforts to rally behind the United States because, he argued in the speech, the only way the United States could not achieve its goals is if the country remained divided. And the Vietnamese recognized, he said, that a divided America was not an America that they had to deal with. They could just wait it out, right, and wait for the, the next administration uh, to offer something better, or for Nixon, you know, feeling desperate given the divisions to offer greater concessions to the Vietnamese. Now, the irony of all of this, of course, is that while Nixon was calling for support from those who opposed U.S. policy, his administration was deeply involved in polarizing the domestic population uh -huh. in dividing Americans um, on a number of different lines. And so, like many things with Richard Nixon, what he said and what he did were often two very different. Right, right. And you know, I, I have to admit, um, not being a scholar of uh, American history, um, I mean, I'm familiar with the silent majority speech, um, but I, for somehow in my mind, silent majority got tied up with uh, much larger issues of the um, what we identify as new right that you talk about in the book, and I and I had forgotten that the the core of the speech actually is the war the or the, the speech is about the war in Vietnam, and that's where the term comes from. But it, it in my mind it took on a life of its own and came to embody just um, sort of the larger um, uh, again that the reaction of the aggrieved and uh, right the silenced right the the victimized right. And there was a recent uh, podcast on uh, on new books about the hard hat riots in uh, in New York, and like these are these are the type of figures I think of um, the uh, white working class um, feeling left out of the direction the Democratic Party is taking and gravitating towards Nixon. So I, it's I'm, I guess I'm trying to say it's interesting uh, that as I reflect upon it, in my mind, silent majority came to be become something much much larger. 
a uh, much larger cultural force. So, I do think that's absolutely yeah. right. I mean, it's, you know, the origins of that term are in the speech about the Vietnam War, but this grew to be something much greater. And, and we've seen, you know, either that term explicitly or comparable terms, you know, the forgotten Americans or others, right. um, you know, used by politicians attempting to mobilize, you know, white, often working class Americans using that pivot of race um, to bring mm-hmm. them into a consensus, increasingly a Republican Party consensus, but not always Republican, um, but using those issues to create some sort of a, a political consensus in favor of goals that were seen as beneficial to white Americans. Yeah. Do, do you think this is maybe one of the first shots in the culture wars that come to dominate American politics uh, in the 80s and especially the 90s and up to the present? I think it is. I mean, I, you know, like I said, Richard Nixon was masterful in polarizing Americans, trying to divide Americans on a number of different lines. Race uh, was one of them, uh, age, gender, sexuality, uh, certainly politics. I mean, that's a given. Um, but, you know, Nixon was, was very good at finding those places where he could divide people in ways that got them warring against one another and ultimately allowing the administration then to go forward with the policy choices that it wished to make. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into the the heart of the book, and um, uh, the book's organized into four chapters. Uh, it's it's a nice, tidy, relatively brief book. It it, w- it would be great for any seminar. Um, I strongly recommend this as a teaching tool. But also, I think that scholars who are maybe not experts in uh, the Nixon presidency and this rhetoric would really be well advised to uh, to read this book. I mean, I, I got so much out of it. I teach the American War in Vietnam, obviously, and this was a really good. Um, uh, perspective for me as a Southeast Asianist to, uh, to get into um, what's going on in, within the Nixon administration. But it's organized into four chapters. The first sets uh, the historical context of Nixon's rise to power. Second looks at uh, the Vietnam, Vietnamization policy and then gets into what you call the illusion of peace. The third chapter discusses the so-called bloodbath theory, which we'll get into. And the final chapter puts the speech in the larger context of what you term right-wing revanchism. There's a final epilogue uh, in which you trace the legacy of Nixon's political rhetoric and electoral tactics through Reagan and Clinton and up to the Trump administration. The book also includes some really great primary sources, including the full text of the speech and a range of reactions to the speech uh, across the political spectrum. So um, the book starts off looking at, at Nixon. Tell, tell us a bit about Nixon's political career. Uh, you mentioned that he started out red baiting in his very first electoral campaign in California. And without going into too much detail of the, uh, the biography of um, uh, Nixon's career, what were some of the highlights or maybe more appropriately lowlights of, of his career um, that you see leading up to this moment of the silent majority speech? Nixon is a fascinating figure. Uh, and in some ways, the biography of Richard Nixon is the biography of the Cold War. Um, Nixon, uh, you know, did various stints in um, the military uh, as a lawyer, you know, working in the private sector uh, up through the end of the Second World War, um, but then was recruited by the Republican Party in California to run for the U.S. House of Representatives uh, for the district where he lived in California, uh, the area around Whittier, um, in 1946. And Nixon was excited about the, the possibility of this sort of public service um, and recognized that the most effective way to beat the Democratic candidate was to smear him red, um, that this was, you know, it, Nixon was, was effective in tapping into uh, the growing political anti-communism of the post-World War II period. And so he did, and he succeeded. Um, he won that political race in 1946 served two terms in the U.S. House, um, and then in 1950 ran for the U.S. Senate, in which he employed the same strategy. Smear's candidate is a political opponent, Red, and successfully did so and was elected to the U.S. Senate. Who was, the, who was his opponent in the senatorial? Uh, uh, Helen Gagan-Douglas. Right, was, right. Was her name. right. Um, and, and then before that, in 1946, Jerry Voorhees was uh, the U.S. representative that he defeated. Um, and Nixon, as a, a member of the House um, and then as a senator, you know, was very much involved in that growing 
uh, anti-communist hysteria of the late 1940s and early 1950s. Nixon, for example, was a member of HUAC, the House on American Activities Committee, uh, which achieved notoriety for its investigations of, well, various sectors in American, American life from you know, the, the public service to probably most famously Hollywood, um, you know, and, and Nixon played an active role uh, in that. He then, like I said, was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1950, um, served two years, um, and then was um, selected to serve as the running mate of Dwight Eisenhower on the Republican ticket in the 1952 U.S. presidential election. Could, I'm, I'm curious, I've, I've never really read up on this, but why, why did um, Ike tap Nixon? Um, it's a good question. I, I think, you know, Nixon was a, a rising star in the Republican Party. Um, he also came from California, which at the time was actually competitive as a state. Um, you know, I mean, today, most Republicans don't consider California to be particularly competitive and yeah. don't spend yeah. much time campaigning there for national office. But that wasn't true in the early 1960 or early 1950s, excuse mm-hmm. me. Um, and so, you know, Nixon was appealing uh, on a number of different levels. Um, you know, like I said, a rising star came from California. Um, Nixon saw it as advantageous to have him, um, you know, as as his running mate, and they won. Um, Nixon, and, and, and he's and he's much younger too, right? And, he was. He was forty years old at the time, right? So he was a. a I don't know really, if I've ever used this word for Nixon, but he's fairly dynamic at that time, right? He was, yeah, yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, not the Nixon we often think of from the late 1960s, early 1970s. This was a, a young, very dynamic, um, very charismatic Nixon. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they won in 1952, and it was in Nixon's capacity as vice president that he began developing some experience in U.S. foreign policy, in particular in the Vietnam War. Um, Nixon was sent by Eisenhower in the fall of 1953 on a trip to a number of places around the world, including Vietnam. And that began Richard Nixon's association with what was unfolding in Southeast Asia. And this is an area that he took considerable interest in backing the French effort in their war against the Viet Minh in the early to mid 1950s. That's a war that came to an end in 1954. Um, And then Nixon, grew to develop um, uh, support for Nodin Ziem, who ultimately emerged as the president of what was called the Republic of Vietnam. I mean, there's a lot of history that I'm just sort of skipping over yeah, here, yeah. but- But I, I gotta interrupt, because I've, I've seen this and I've um, just wondered about the confirmation. Did he, did Nixon actually uh, float the idea of using atomic weapons at Dien Bien Phu, or is that- uh, I haven't heard that yeah. specifically associated with Nixon, but yeah. with the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure, Mike. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. It may have been Nixon. Um, it may, it may, may be apocryphal that it was tied to Nixon. I, I know that the, the idea was floated around and then, tactically how that would work at Dien Bien Phu is, doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but anyway. Right. Right. Um, but then again, you know, I mean, the idea of you, the use of tactical nuclear weapons was floated in a number of, yeah. of different places. The idea that you could, you know, harness America's uh, atomic power for use on a battlefield without, you know, creating right. either a, right. a larger conflagration um, or destroying the, you know, uh, the world in the process. Um, so Nixon did develop some foreign policy experience in the 1950s and served two terms as vice president. Eisenhower was reelected in 1956. Um, And then when the Eisenhower administration came to an end, Nixon served as the Republican candidate for president running against John F. Kennedy in 1960. Um, He lost that election to Kennedy um, and ran once for governor of California. and, uh, and then in 1968, emerged once again as the Republican candidate for president, um, and this time managed to, to win the election, running against a, a Minnesotan, Hubert Humphrey, um, who had been vice president to, to Lyndon Johnson and carried the baggage then of Johnson's advocacy and policies um, of the Vietnam War. Right, right. So... This is, it gives a speech in the first year. Um, so he's sworn in in January. The speech is in November. Um, and one of the things that he's advocating in the speech is for the policy of Vietnamization. What, what, what is this policy and how is this a, 
a new turn for the war? How is it a new policy in, uh, under Nixon? So Vietnamization, the idea behind it was, as Nixon spelled it out in late 1969, that the United States would begin to gradually withdraw American combat troops from Vietnam. And in the process, push most of the fighting onto the armed forces of the South Vietnamese government, the Republic of Vietnam government. And I'm always reluctant to use that term South Vietnamese because it it's misleading if you're not familiar with the complexity and nuances of the war. Most of those that the Americans were fighting against were South Vietnamese. Um, and, and so when you're talking about the South Vietnamese government, you're overlooking you know, the, the fact that there was a, a diverse political situation yeah. in, the, in the South of Vietnam. That... There, there, there's a whole bunch of terms American scholars just throw around without unpacking um, that drive, drive Southeast Asians nuts. Um, and I, I actually really appreciated that in the beginning, you have a glossary where you explain um, the, some of the terminology and your critique of the way of the use of some of the terms. Like, for example, Viet Cong just does more, more damage than... Um, than uh, uh, is acceptable in terms of like structuring the discourse uh, around the war. Um, so I appreciated that. Thank you. <laughs> sure. So yeah. anyway, so, so for the, the Republic of, um, of Vietnam, this is a, a policy to, to what, to hand things over to them? To, yeah. So in other words, to, you know, hand over much of the ground fighting responsibility to armed forces in the Republic of Vietnam government, you know, this is the government based in Saigon, while at the same time maintaining or even escalating the American air war. And Nixon pursued this because Nixon, I think, recognized that while there was growing American opposition to the war, most Americans, according to polls, the majority of Americans, according to polls by 1968, 1969, Nixon believed that much of that opposition, opposition existed because of two things in particular. One, the existence of the draft, um, which meant you know, many Americans who may not have wanted to serve in the war were being conscripted to go serve in it. And two, the number of American casualties that Americans, he believed, weren't so worried about Vietnamese deaths. And of course, there were large numbers of Americans who were, but if you could shrink the number of American casualties, that this would help to dissipate some of that anti-war sentiment. And the best way to do that, he thought, was to reduce the number of ground troops in Vietnam, um, because these were most of those who were suffering casualties. I mean, pilots were occasionally being shot down, captured, or killed, um, but most of the American casualties were coming from people serving on the ground in Vietnam. So if you could bring Americans out and turn over much of that fighting to the forces of the Republic of Vietnam, who, by the way, were doing most of the fighting and suffering most of the casualties, uh, even before Vietnamization, that this would allow Nixon some room, some space, and some time to achieve what he called an honorable peace, which meant either a negotiated settlement on terms favorable to the United States, or even potentially a US military victory. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with Vietnamization was that it contained uh, a number of problems that, that Nixon hadn't quite anticipated. Um, you know, Once you began withdrawing American troops, the expectation was the war was winding down, and the American public would expect more American troops to be coming home. Henry Kissinger, who was Nixon's national security advisor, referred to this as, you know, the salted peanuts dilemma, right? Um, that Americans have some salted peanuts, they want some more. And, and, you know, withdrawing American combat troops was the same thing. Once you start bringing some home, more need to come home. And this meant less space for Nixon to be able to pursue the policies that he thought were necessary in Vietnam. Moreover, it seemed to be giving away American leverage in that, you know, U.S. leverage going in negotiations with the Vietnamese revolutionaries um, had to do with bringing the United States out of the war. If the Americans were already withdrawing American troops, why, the thinking went, should the revolutionaries give something up um, in order to get what they're already receiving. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned this, but as, as the number of American boots on the ground are decreasing, there's the steady increase in the American bombing campaigns. So could you say a few words on the, on the bombing campaigns during the uh, policy of Vietnamization? Sure. So, you know, this was, uh, this was, you know, very much, um, 
intended by the Nixon administration to send a signal to to Hanoi and to the Vietnamese revolutionaries in the South. Uh, the idea being that just because the United States is withdrawing American combat forces doesn't mean it's de-escalating the war. Nixon saw this as a way of signaling to Hanoi and the revolutionaries that in fact the administration would be increasing America's commitment in Vietnam just in a different sort of way. Now, when I say in Vietnam, um, we have to understand that this bombing campaign was not just in Vietnam. Most significantly, the U.S. began a massive B-52 bombing campaign in neighboring Cambodia. Now, the United States had, in fact, been bombing Cambodia, which was officially neutral in the war, uh, going back to the mid-1960s. A couple of scholars, um, Ben Kiernan perhaps most significantly, have done some work on this. Um, but Nixon greatly escalated that campaign. And not just in terms of number uh, and scale, but also the type of bombing. This was carpet bombing of the Cambodian countryside, which meant largely indiscriminate, the dropping of massive bombs uh, that killed tens of thousands of Cambodian civilians and ended up, ironically enough, being one of the major recruiting tools for what at the time was a fairly marginal Cambodian insurgency in the countryside, a leftist communist insurgency known as the Khmer Rouge, which was able to effectively use local anger at the American bombing in Cambodia to mobilize support for the insurgency that ultimately overthrew the U.S.-backed Cambodian government. And then from 1975 to late 1978-1979 instituted, you know, one of the worst genocides of the 20th century. Right. And it's, I mean, in, in that regard, the bombing in Cambodia is very similar to the bombing in um, the north of Vietnam um, in that it's designed for, uh, to achieve certain political purposes, but completely backfires. It, yeah, Ben Kiernan's very clear that it, it, the, the bombing is the key factor uh, for the rise of the Khmer Rouge. But, um, and scholars of um, the communist regime in Vietnam point to the fact that especially after the disastrous land reform campaign of the... Um, the mid to late 1950s in, in uh, northern Vietnam, the American bombing actually rallied many peasants around uh, uh, Hanoi's cause. And, um, you know, you, you, I always talk to my students about it. So, you know, you go, you go into some small village in, in uh, northeastern Cambodia or northern Vietnam and start talking about American imperialism. And it's just, it's just absolute nonsense. What's American imperialism? Until the day that the B-52s come through and incinerate your village and kill your children and your wife then suddenly, oh, that's American imperialism. Um, so I, I think that that, that that parallel of the boots, boots on the ground decreasing as the bombs falling dramatically increasing, and some of the, some of the stats are absolutely astounding. I mean, you, you talk about the, um, the, the number, uh, the, the amount of ordnance dropped on Cambodia um, in this time period. I mean, what's, what it's, it's comparable to, uh, what, 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 there's a famous I mean, comparison to World War II. I'm sorry, repeat that. It's just that, you know, a number of scholars have pointed to the, you know, the amount of tonnage dropped on Cambodia or Laos during, you know, these, these few years of, of American war, this one country are comparable to the, the amount of tonnage dropped across all theaters by the United States during World War II. Yeah. And, and, and these are not target rich environments in Northeastern Cambodia. I mean, this is, this is from, from the perspective of Phnom Penh or most Cambodians, this is the, really the backwater of, of Cambodia. I mean, very, very small villages and so forth. Um, so when, in this chapter, you also talk about the illusion of peace. Um, so what, what does this mean in terms of Nixon's war of Vietnam? What do, you, what do you mean by the illusion of peace? Well, Nixon was trying to, of course, um, win space for his administration to pursue the policies it thought necessary to achieve either a negotiated settlement with the Vietnamese revolutionaries, though, you know, it's very important to note one that was settled on, on terms favorable to the United States, not just in thinking about, you know, the specific uh, area of Vietnam, but U.S. credibility in the, the Cold War struggle more broadly, um, or, you know, the time needed to through various military actions, you know, the expansion of the war to Cambodia, there was a support for an operation, a cross-border operation into Laos by the Republic of Vietnam forces, um, uh, you know, in, in 1971, um, you know, the space needed in order to achieve either a military victory or that negotiated settlement. 
the dilemma for Nixon was he had a domestic audience that was demanding an end to the war. And this constrained the ability of the administration to do whatever it wanted to. And so Nixon felt the need to gradually withdraw American combat forces. You know, he announced, you know, uh, this week, you know, 30,000 troops are coming home. Uh, maybe a couple of months later, we're bringing home another 75,000. And so the number of Americans on the ground in Vietnam is, is decreasing. Um, and thus, Americans feel like the war is, in fact, coming to an end. But the war itself remains just as bloody as ever in Vietnam. Um, and this, you know, this was in many ways by design, right? The, you know, for the United States to achieve what it wanted in any settlement negotiations, it needed to push the Vietnamese revolutionaries, it felt, or, you know, Moscow um, or Beijing to push the Vietnamese revolutionaries. Um, it needed to make things um, so intolerable for people on the ground in Vietnam that, you know, the, the, the revolutionaries be, would, would be willing to, uh, to settle on terms favorable to the United States. And, you know, that never really happened. Um, ultimately, there was a settlement in, well, it was negotiated the basic terms of the settlement in 1972, um, in October of 1972. Uh, but then the, you know, the U.S.-backed government in Saigon rejected those terms, uh, leading to, you know, one of the, uh, the bloodiest bombing campaigns of the war. This was a, a bombing campaign in December of 1972 that began December of 1972, um, often referred to as the Christmas bombings, you know, this gift from the United States to the Vietnamese, um, a massive B-52 bombing campaign that killed thousands of people. And um, that was not intended to push the Vietnamese revolutionaries to accept different terms from the United States. In fact, the settlement that emerged after that was virtually identical to the settlement that had been agreed to in October of 1972. Rather, what it was was a demonstration by Washington to the U.S.-backed president of the Republic of Vietnam, Nguyen Van Thieu, that uh, the United States would be willing to use its force to ensure that he could remain in power, his government could be preserved. Um, and so it was a demonstration really not to Hanoi, but rather to Saigon. To Saigon, right, exactly. Um, so let, let's circle back around to the speech. Um, uh, as a Southeast Asianist, I really enjoyed your chapter on the bloodbath theory. Um, I've seen the Southeast Asian side of this discussion. So looking at how Americans were, uh, were thinking about um, this. So what, what, what was the bloodbath theory and what evidence was there to support this idea of a coming bloodbath? And um, What's the, the critique of this? So the bloodbath theory uh, was a response by the United States to the growing outrage, both in the United States and abroad, um, with the number of atrocities for which the United States bore considerable responsibilities um, in this war. Uh, these were either you know, direct U.S. atrocities, such as you know, probably most famously the Mili Massacre, or you know, the US campaign to essentially um, evacuate the Southern Vietnamese countryside, pushing people from their ancestral homes into refugee camps on the edges of, of cities. Um, you know, this was something that was seen as inconsistent with US professions of democracy, freedom, and human rights, right? How do you talk about the United States as you know, a force for good, someone who's trying to bring these things to the world, while at the same time, U.S. policies are leading to hundreds of thousands or even millions of deaths of ordinary people in Southeast Asia. And so what the bloodbath theory was, was an effort to effectively reverse the moral calculus of the war. And what it, what it said, the bloodbath theory, I mean, the logic of the bloodbath theory was that if the United States, which you know, everybody recognized was responsible for pretty mass carnage uh, in Southeast Asia. If the United States were to withdraw from Vietnam, that there would be a communist perpetrated massacre of millions of Vietnamese in the countryside, in the cities, people who had either supported um, the United States or not supported the Vietnamese communists, the Vietnamese revolutionaries, and the revolutionaries, by the way, 
we're not all communists. Um, you know, these terms are often used synonymously, but there were many non-communists who affiliated with the revolutionary movement, but that there would be this revolutionary or communist massacre of potentially millions of Vietnamese. And the only thing stopping that from happening was the ongoing U.S. presence in Vietnam. Yeah. So in it, other it, words- it, sound, it sounds so much like the British justifying staying in India in the 1930s and 1940s. If the British leave, then the Hindus and Muslims will slaughter each other. Um, so what, um, what was the evidence that they, they marshaled in favor of this bloodbath theory? So there were two major episodes that the Nixon administration drew on to offer support for the idea that this massacre would take place. One of these uh, was something you referred to earlier in the, the podcast when you mentioned the, the land reform atrocities of the mid-1950s. Um, this was an episode uh, in the north of Vietnam um, that, you know, there's still a lot we don't know about the land reform atrocities, um, but by all accounts, they were horrific. Um, these were... Um, you know, probably somewhere uh, at least a few thousand, perhaps as many as 15,000, or perhaps even a greater number, we really don't know, of Vietnamese um, who were executed for alleged crimes as part of a land reform program instituted by Hanoi in the mid-1950s. And some of this appears to have been um, local grievances that spun out of control, things that were outside the knowledge or purview of what was happening in Hanoi. Um, though, again, we're still learning about, mm -hmm. about this event. So there are things that we don't know. But again, by all accounts, um, it, was a, it was a terrible series of atrocities, but one that the Nixon administration used to paint a picture of, you know, a coming genocide if the United States were to leave Vietnam. And I'll get in a moment, I'll get into why that's a problematic. Yeah. It, it, it resonates with um, what people know about Stalin's forced collectivization in the 1930s and the, the liquidation of the kulaks. And this is, this is just what communists do, right? They slaughter their own people. They, they do a class war throughout the countryside, right? That's right. And, and that's, you know, that's what made it so easy for the Nixon administration to argue that, right? Is that, you know, people just assumed that yeah, communists engaged in atrocities. Um, you don't need to prove that. You don't need to address the complexity of what actually happened in the 1950s and why that's not necessarily a good indicator of what might happen if the United States might leave. Um, you know, given the anti-communism of most Americans, it was just assumed that, yeah, sure, this is what communists do. And so you don't really need to demonstrate the validity of that argument. The second episode um, was one that was much more recent, um, and that was the Hawaii massacre of 1968, which I mentioned before, which again, we don't, we're still learning, um, you know, some of the details of what happened. But in that case, uh, there were a series of atrocities carried out by members of the National Liberation Front. These were the, you know, the Southern revolutionaries who the Americans and the Saigon government referred to as the Viet Cong, though that's not a term they themselves used. It's a very loaded yeah, it's, a, it's an insult. It's, it, 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 I like the way you described it. Essentially, Viet, Viet Cong would translate into commie in American uh, political parlance, right? It's just insulting, belittling term, right? That's right. Yep. Um, and, and so in 1968, uh, during the Tet Offensive, which was this major offensive waged by the Vietnamese revolutionaries throughout the south of Vietnam, um, the revolutionaries captured the city of Hawaii, which was in central Vietnam, but south of the 17th parallel, which was the, the border um, marking um, North Vietnam from, from South Vietnam, uh, which I mean, is something that needs to be unpacked, but I'm not gonna <laughs> do that here. Um, but during that occupation of Hawaii, uh, the revolutionaries held Hawaii longer than they did anywhere else during the, the Tet Offensive. And as it became clear, that the revolutionaries were going to, to lose control of Hawaii, that they were going to be driven out of the city by the United States. Um, they had with them a number of, of Vietnamese um, who had worked with the Americans or were sympathetic to the Americans who they were holding captive, who rather than allow them, this is at least the best indication of what happened, allow and, them. And also also in, intelligence officers from the secret, secret police. That's and, right. I mean, they're, it's, I mean, <laughs> this, is a this is a revolution and it is a civil war, right? 
It is. Yes. Uh, these are a number of these were people with a lot of blood on their hands. I mean, people who had, you know, um, very brutally cracked down on, on the revolutionary movement. Um, you know, uh, these were not all innocent civilians. Um, they, um, as, as the revolutionaries becomes clear that they're going to have to evacuate Huawei rather than allow some of these people to escape, they killed them. And, um, we don't know how many they killed. Uh, the best estimates are in the, the hundreds. Um, it's also not clear whether the revolutionaries were responsible for all of those who were killed. Um, there's some evidence suggesting that um, some of the killing took place um, or was perpetrated by uh, the armed forces of the South Vietnamese government in, in Saigon. Um, but in the end, hundreds of people were killed in, in Hawaii. Um, and again, there's a lot of complexity, a lot of nuance in what happened here. But in a very simplistic version of what took place, Richard Nixon tapped into that to argue, see, just like they killed these people who were sided, siding with the United States in 1968, if we precipitately withdraw from Vietnam in 1969, this is what's going to happen. You know, what we saw in Hawaii is only the beginning of what's going to happen. Take Hawaii, expand that across all of South Vietnam so that, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of South Vietnamese will be killed in this sort of a, a massacre. And that then provided that moral justification for U.S. continued involvement and intervention, right? If the United States was engaged in widespread atrocities and it was widely recognized that it was, the U.S. argument was, yeah, we can get out but it's going to be even worse. So we actually have a moral obligation to stay in Vietnam to prevent those sorts of massacres from happening. Right. Again, sounds just like the British in India. Mm -hmm. um, but so in 1975, the, the Americans have been out of the war for two years. Um, the, um, the Saigon regime loses the war. The North uh, sweeps in. And is there a bloodbath? No, there was not a bloodbath. Um, you know, so despite U.S. predictions otherwise, uh, there was no bloodbath in the south of Vietnam. Um, now, you know, there were, um, certainly there was repression. Um, you know, there, it's, a, it's a complex situation, but, you know, thousands of people uh, were placed for various periods of time and were referred to as re-education camps. And some of those people died in the re-education camps. Um, but the sort of indiscriminate slaughter that the United States predicted where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people were going to be summarily executed by the revolutionaries. No, that did not happen. Yeah. But, but, but it did happen in Cambodia. And I mean, this is, this is getting on to sort of the spirals of these conflicts. But again, the conditions in Cambodia were really set in, in the conditions that led to the rise of the Khmer Rouge and that bloodbath really were set in motion by the Nixon Kissinger bombing campaigns destabilizing that country. So I, it's, it, it's, it's interesting teaching this because um, yeah, the expected bloodbath did not happen in Vietnam, but there was a surprise and, and truly horrifying bloodbath in Cambodia. But you also mentioned that there was a, another bloodbath in the region uh, just a few years prior to this in 65, 66, uh, just to the South in Indonesia. And, and, that, that that ties into this Cold War history and history of violence. Could could you say just a few quick words on that? Sure. Um, so this was this was not during the Nixon administration, but right. certainly it you know it led to um, you know some of what Nixon was saying uh, as you know sort of an establishment figure in Washington D.C. to ring hollow um, the idea that the United States had to prevent these sorts of bloodbaths. Um, because that's just intolerable, right? Um, you know, and we didn't need to look far back in history to see, you know, the United States not only allowing, but actually supporting another bloodbath in Southeast Asia. And that was the, the anti-communist massacres in Indonesia in 1965 and 1966, um, when following an alleged coup, um, you know, the Indonesian armed forces led by Suharto, uh, crack down in perpetrating massacres across the Indonesian archipelago, especially Java, Bali, and, and some of the main islands, but across the archipelago. So that by the end, um, you know, the, the conservative estimate by the CIA is roughly 500,000 um, Indonesians were killed as, as part of this massacre, what the CIA called one of the worst mass murders mm -hmm. in, in history. And the United States, you know, not only looked the other way, but in fact provided some support for those massacres. The historian by the name of Brad Simpson has done some important work on, on this issue. 
Um, and so, you know, that certainly would be an example of, you know, the United States not really seeming to care that much about mass atrocities taking place, though in Indonesia, it was the right people being killed. These were mm -hmm. members of the Indonesian Communist Party or people who were seen as sympathetic to the Indonesian Communist Party. Um, there are also, you know, during the Nixon administration were episodes of mass human rights violations, including genocide, that the Nixon administration, you know, again, both looked the other way and in fact abetted in some ways. Probably the best example of that is what was unfolding in what at the time was known as, as East Pakistan, but what we know today as, as Bangladesh, um, when a number of U.S. diplomats, in fact, on the ground in, in that area, dissented from Nixon administration policy and wrote a, a scathing um, telegram back to Washington, D.C., um, expressing their outrage what was taking place and the fact that the administration was allowing these sorts of atrocities to unfold. So, you know, I mean, I do think that that's important context in trying to understand how sincerely we should take the Nixon administration's position mm -hmm. on the potential for atrocities in, in Vietnam. You know, if we value human life in Vietnam, and I'm not sure that Nixon or Kissinger did, I actually don't believe they did, but, but if they did, why did they not value human life in Indonesia, or why did they not value human life in East Pakistan or, or Bangladesh? Or, or Chile. Um, Chile, East the, Timor. I mean, it was, you know, the, the list is, is unfortunately quite long. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, just bring this back to uh, the United States. Um, in the last full chapter, you argue for the importance of the silent majority speech in the formation of the American New Right. Um, how did the speech pave the way for what was to come uh, in the Reagan era? Um, uh, Lee at, paved the way for Lee Atwater, um, and arguably paved the way for for Trumpism. Well, I you know one of the arguments that I make in the book is that you know the audience that Nixon was speaking to, the audience that he referred to as the silent majority, uh, was this same audience that we find supporting. Um, you know, often racist, divisive policies um, from various administrations, usually but not exclusively Republican. I mean, Bill Clinton was was quite effective in pursuing a number of, of policies that targeted African-Americans or other people of color in the 1990s. Um, but, you know, certainly with Richard Nixon, what we see is, you know, when he's referring to the silent majority, he's talking about white Americans and what he envisions as this mythical heartland who can be mobilized um, as patriotic, moral, God-fearing Americans to support the sorts of policies that the Republican Party and Richard Nixon wanted to pursue. And the way that Nixon went about mobilizing their support um, was through the issue of race. And sometimes this was quite explicit, at least in internal conversations by political officials, Lee Atwater would be an example of that, um, but often through the use of what was thought of as dog whistle politics. The idea that as it became increasingly illegitimate to refer to people of color in explicitly racist ways, that the way to appeal to white voters is not by denouncing, you know, the, the N-words in the South as someone like a Henry Wallace might have felt, uh, excuse me, George Wallace, very different Wallace, George Wallace. <laughs> big, big difference uh, there. <laughs> yeah, may have, have felt comfortable doing, um, but rather to talk about things like law and order or, you know, welfare or the war on drugs, all of these things often racialized in ways that whites saw their interest aligned with the Republican party that was looking after white Americans um, and, and trying to um, cut off from US largesse, um, those African-Americans or other people of color who were seen as unfairly or illegitimately, um, you know, leeching off, off these tax-paying Americans, white Americans, um, who were becoming part of the Republican coalition. Right, right. Um, you, you mentioned law and order, and that's, that is something that we've seen a revival of in Trump's rhetoric. I mean, every now and then he puts out these tweets he just writes law and order in all caps. It's almost like he's got some sort of Twitter Tourette syndrome where he just sort of blurts this out with like no context. And in that, that horrifying spectacle, I don't even want to call it a debate the other week, 
um, uh, with uh, with all that yelling. At one point, he was he was uh, goading Joe Biden to to say say law and order, say law and order, and saying, "Look, he won't even say it." Um, um, what what's behind that term? Can you because um, it, it's that's not part of the silent majority speech, but that seems to be part of the same rhetorical strategies that you're talking about that Nixon developed that has this, again, the importance of this, this long legacy over several decades. Yeah, so this goes back to, you know, the late 1960s. Um, and there were two things happening in the United States. Well, there were many things happening, right? But, but two crucial things that helped Nixon frame the law and order issue in ways that benefited him and the Republican Party politically. One of these uh, was, you know, the, the ongoing legacies and repercussions of the civil rights movement. This was a movement um, in which, as part of that movement, a number of activists engaged in civil disobedience. They very intentionally broke the law in order to demonstrate the injustice of the laws at that time. And Republicans, and at the time, even Democrats, the Democratic Party, you know, was the party of white supremacy in the South for much of the 20th century, um, were very effective in denouncing law-breaking by civil rights activists shorn of its political context, right? That these are people who don't care about law. They don't care about uh, our way of life in the South. They're willing to break these laws and create disorder even if you know, much of the country may have sympathized with why it was that they were breaking the law, not to create chaos, not disorder, but to demonstrate the injustice of the law. And, and so that sort of law uh, breaking became very closely associated with the civil rights movement, which meant in most cases, African-Americans. And another thing that you saw was given the growing anti-war movement, much of it centered uh, among young people in the United States by the late 1960s, many of these young people were themselves engaging in civil disobedience, or, you know, sometimes uh, there was, there were violent demonstrations, you know, you start to see, um, you know, quite late in the war, the emergence of some uh, militant organizations that are engaged in bombing campaigns or, you know, kidnappings, um, even the idea of political assassination. Um, and, so Nixon was very effective in looking at this sort of disorder, as, as he framed it, both in political terms, you know, the new left, um, the young people, um, and, and then, of course, you know, that disorder coming out of the civil rights movement and then the growing black power, brown power, red power, and so on movements of the late 1960s and into the 1970s, that sort of disorder as being something that white Americans ought to fear. And Nixon promised that he would restore law then to the United States, demonstrating to these folks who were seen as potentially upending the status quo, one that many white Americans were deeply invested in, that in cracking down on those folks, Richard Nixon was protecting the way of life of millions of Americans who didn't really care that much that there were deep racial injustices in the United States or that the Americans were engaged in imperialism abroad. You know, the, the country served them well and, and they were quite content with that status quo. And so Nixon was able to use that idea of creating order out of disorder to mobilize white Americans. And he hoped, of course, bring them into the Republican fold. And this is something that we've seen now, you know, going through the decades up to the 21st century when Donald Trump, of course, when he's talking now about law and order, who's he talking about with respect to disorder? Black Lives Matter, right? I mean, again, it's sure there are white activists involved in Black Lives Matter, but this is a Black-led movement and Black Americans, African Americans as agents of disorder in the United States and Trump employing those dog whistle politics is able to mobilize opposition to that movement and support for his policies by promising to crack down on them and bring peace once more to America's cities, which evidently, you know, unbeknownst to most of the people living in these cities are in, you know, in, engulfed in, in flames and chaos at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it was Cornell West uh, said in a recent interview, he's sure Trump's using this dog whistle politics, but he's blowing it through a bullhorn. It's a dog yes. whistle through a bullhorn. Um, so you've been really generous with your time, and I know you've got to run off to actually teach a class online in the age of COVID here. Um, but before I let you go, I want to ask you just two more questions. First, can you suggest two books related to this topic that you'd suggest to our listeners? 
Sure. Um, you know, one book that I really like, and I think is very readable, um, it's a great read, in fact, is Rick Perlstein's book, Nixonland. Um, we know, may know Perlstein. He's published a number of books on that sort of right wing, um, the, the growth of the right in the United States from the 1960s um, up through the Reagan era. And in fact, just recently released his most recent book, Reagan Land, um, which looks at the, the Reagan administration. Um, but his book on, on Nixon, Nixon Land, I think is an, an excellent book. Um, Pearlstein's a, a journalist as well as a popular historian. And so it's written in a very engaging way. And I do recommend that. Um, on, on this phenomenon that we were talking about at the end, the dog whistle politics, um, there's actually a, a book called Dog Whistle Politics by Ian Haney Lopez that I, I think is a, a great book. I found it really useful um, as I was doing research into this issue, and I'd recommend that one as well. Okay, great. So Nixon Land and Dog Whistle Politics. Fantastic. Right. Now, finally, what are you working on now? What can we hope to hear, uh, see from you next? Um, I'm working on a couple of things. Um, one is a book on the beach, uh, the California beach in particular, as a, a contested space um, and one with a, a deep and often surprising history. Um, that's a book that I'm still very early on, um, but starting to do some research there. The other is a project that I'm a little bit farther on um, with, but, but still quite a ways to go. And that's a, um, well, it's either going to be a long article or possibly a book. We'll see. Uh, on a Vietnamese national who hijacked a plane from the United States of Vietnam in the early 1970s. His name was Win Tai Bin um, and was killed by the pilot uh, or sorry, by a passenger at the orders of the pilot on the plane. And it's a it's a story that I stumbled upon uh, in the archives at one point and I think opens up a number of fascinating windows into American life in the early 1970s that that I look forward to exploring. Well, I look forward to seeing both of those. So <laughs> get to work. <laughs> so Scott uh, Latterman, thank you so much for your time and for speaking with us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So this has been a conversation with Scott Letterman about his new book, The Silent Majority Speech, Richard Nixon, The Vietnam War, and the Origins of the New Right, out with Rutledge in 2019. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.